From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Emily Tomlin. And I'm Michael Mikowski. I'm not trying to turn students into political scientists. I'm trying to turn them into intelligent consumers. And this meant that I could both join an extraordinary political science department filled with exceptional scholars. One of the most gratifying things is to have students come up at the end of a class and say, I used to think politics was boring. This, 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 this is 1050 Bascom. Welcome to 1050 Bascom. This is John Zumbrunnen, your host for today. I'm a faculty member and the chair of the Department of Political Science. Today on the podcast, we're very lucky to have Eileen Harrington joining us. Every fall, Eileen teaches a course for us in political science on public policy. It's a, an amazing course that has students doing uh, real-world, authentic uh, writing assignments around public policy analysis and advocacy. It's a course that students are desperate to get into, and we can never offer enough seats. Beyond that, Eileen uh, brings to teaching that course a wealth of experience in the federal government. Eileen served as the executive director of the Federal Trade Commission. She served as the chief operating officer of the U.S. Small Business Administration. Right now, in addition to teaching a course for us here in Madison, she spends time in Tucson, where she teaches administrative law at the University of Arizona. She also has her own consulting company and remains active in local, state, and national politics. So, Eileen, welcome to 1050 Bascom. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us, for all the great work you've done in general throughout your career, and certainly for the amazing teaching that you're doing here at UW right now. Before we jump into your uh, career in government and then your time teaching with us, we just want to get to know you a little bit and about your background. I know you grew up in the Madison area, so tell us a little bit about your own college experience. Sure. Well, born and raised in Madison, my college years uh, spanned the years of the Vietnam War and that conflict. And like many of my peers at the time, I was probably a little bit more involved in work outside of the classroom than (laughs) in. My undergraduate career spanned six and a half years, although I was actually in school maybe three of those years. I took time off several times to work both on local organizing to oppose the war in Vietnam and Mm -hmm. on political campaigns supporting candidates who had strong anti-war positions. And I also had the good fortune of being taken on as a mentee by Pat Lucy, who was the governor of Wisconsin at the time. And so I worked in his campaign as an 18-year-old and then went back to his re-election campaign in 1974 and was a field organizer for that. My college years really blended with what wasn't at the time, I don't think, uh, an unusual level of activism right. and work to try to change the course of important policies. So that that interest in activism. So if you started to work on a gubernatorial campaign when you were 18, had you already been engaged and active in, in politics before that time? Yes. I was born and raised in Madison. Okay. And I think my first campaign activity probably came when I was 12. Okay. <laughs> um, and that was during the civil rights movement and the early part of the anti-war movement. Mm-hmm. Um, as it happens, I went to Edgewood High School in Madison, which was at the time a, a real hotbed of social justice activism. Okay. The Cincinnati Dominican sisters were really present at the school then, mm-hmm. and their whole thing was social justice. 
that was a big uh, formative influence for me, I would say, the sort of the social justice focus at Edgewood, but also my family, my grandparents were all immigrants. They came from Ireland. Okay. And they settled in Hurley and Mineral Point, mm-hmm. respectively, and they moved to Madison because there was good public education oh, in wow. Madison for their kids. My grandfathers literally worked their ways out of worked their way out of mines and okay. came to Madison and supported their kids and their kids all went to the University of Wisconsin, all ten of them. Wow. So there was a narrative at my dinner table mm. um, and it was we moved to Madison we got good high school educations at the public schools. Then the Depression hit. We all had to move in together. We all took care of each other. And Franklin Roosevelt saved us. Okay. And Wisconsin is the most special place in the world yeah. because look what we got from yeah. Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And we really need to give back. Uh, okay. So there was, there was a very deep connection to Wisconsin, to the progressive tradition, right. to education and the quality of public education in Mm -hmm. Wisconsin and the notion that public service was something that really is to be celebrated and we should look for opportunities to Mm -hmm. do that. And that notion of of, uh, public service and of giving back could take the form of a of an activism and and out in the streets marching. It eventually, obviously, in your case, also ended up with a long career in right. in public office. But it could also be a matter of protests, pushing back against the system, demanding change. That right. was public service as well. Absolutely, yeah. and still is. Yeah. Many of us growing up in Madison at the time in the 60s and early 70s would go to school and then come to campus to learn. We went to Mm teach-ins that were held here. We participated in demonstrations. We got gassed right along with the students, Uh uh, those of us who were growing up here. It was really a time in Madison. It was a a big time of change in Madison. You know, the other thing that was going on, of course, was that most of the students had some sort of deferment from the draft. Right. We had a draft right. then. And so uh, there was a lot of pressure on students to stay in school because if they withdrew, they would go right in, male students, right. of course, would go right into the draft and be drafted. Um, and so, you know, there was a lot of grief right. here at the time as former colleagues you know, as students here were drafted and killed and, right. and wounded, that was, that was a big deal and a big motivation for students to want to vote yeah. to end that war. You describe a time during your college years when you were uh, engaged as an activist. You had you were developing a resume of political experience, working on gubernatorial campaigns, working on a presidential campaign, right, that a lot of our students today would be envious of. No doubt you could have stayed in Madison and worked in the political world in Madison. You could have moved on in a variety of different directions at the state level or national level. You decided to go to law school. So tell me about that decision. Why law school? Well, it wasn't immediate. Okay. Um, I I finished college and moved to Denver and Uh worked for Common Cause, which Ah. was a public interest organization at the Uh time that was focused on open meetings, good government kinds of reform. And I coordinated all of their lobbying at the state levels Mm -hmm. uh, in the Western states. I did that for a couple of years. So I moved to Colorado. I worked for Common Cause. And then I did some work organizing in Appalachia. Wow. And then I decided law school would be a good thing to do. So I went to Washington, D.C. to go to law school. Mm -hmm. I went to the Antioch School of Law, which it was a very innovative and progressive law school. Antioch was the school that invented clinical legal education in the United States. And it required students to 
be enrolled in a clinic every semester of every year of law school. And the clinics were funded by the Legal Services Corporation. Mm -hmm. And collectively, the Antioch clinics were the largest legal services provider in the District of Columbia. So that's where I went to law school. Okay. And it was an amazing experience. Yeah. Uh, you know, I loved law school, and there aren't very many people who can say that. <laughs> who will say they loved law yes. school, right? After that legal education, did you go into work in the federal government right after that education? or you? I didn't. I, the... For a couple of years, I worked for a new nonprofit in D.C. that was focused on uh, providing low-income housing finance. So I did that for a couple of years. Uh-huh. And it was really exciting and interesting. And then I thought, you know, I really need to get like a serious lawyer job (laughs) uh, because my resume, you know, will not suggest that I actually am an attorney Right. if I don't do something pretty soon. (laughs) So I actually was in a poker game with some friends in D.C. And one of them said, you know, what are you doing these days? And I said what I was doing. And she said, you know, you really ought to apply for this job that we have open at the Federal Trade Commission. Okay. And I thought... (laughs) Well, uh, you know, what do they do at the Federal Trade Commission? I'm not really interested in commodities <laughs> right, and, and the right. export of commodities. And right. like, no, 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 we don't do that. We are the Federal Consumer Protection Agency. Uh, and I said, sure. well, that's pretty interesting. So, um, and we need someone to come to work as a staff attorney specifically to focus on the enforcement of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. Okay. Uh, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act was the only federal law that emerged from all of the efforts of the second wave of the women's movement. The, the ERA failed. Mm-hmm. Other efforts to pass legislation to reduce discrimination against women failed. Mm-hmm. But the Equal Credit Opportunity Act passed. And it was a pretty simple law. It said that creditors and lenders and those who advertise and direct people to credit can't discriminate on the basis of sex and marital status. Okay. That was the original law. It was later amended to include race, religion, national origin, receipt of public benefits, mm-hmm. all sorts of things. The FTC was the main agency, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, charged with the responsibility for enforcing the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, there's an opportunity to do good, and it's a serious lawyer job. Mm-hmm. So I applied, and I was hired. Mm-hmm. And I never regretted it. Okay. So that decision was both, I mean, when you think about, um, so it's motivated by your sense of purpose, maybe maybe your sense of mission, but also also some practical professional concerns, yes. right? This is a, this will give me this yes. kind of line on my resume that will show I'm a real lawyer, but also this is still doing some good in the world according to your your notion of the good, right? Right. right. And you never regretted it. So never. it must it must have turned out that you felt then like you could do some good. In those kinds of positions. Absolutely. Every single day that I worked in the federal service, I felt an opportunity Mm -hmm. to do good. And working at the Federal Trade Commission, which is just a gem of an agency Mm. and a very different sort of agency, was the best possible thing that, that could have happened. I always felt that the only thing wrong that we did at the FTC was not enough. Okay. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it was just an honor and a privilege to work there. When I went to work at the Small Business Administration, I had, and I did that at the request of the Obama White House because they needed somebody who knew how to manage in the federal government to go to the SBA, which had been decimated mm-hmm. during the Bush administration. And um, you may recall that when President Obama took office, the economy was in the tank. There was a stimulus bill enacted. That bill included $17 billion in new loan guarantee authority for the SBA. The Bush administration had wanted to eliminate 
the Small Business Administration. Mm -hmm. uh, they failed in their efforts to do that, so instead they cut the workforce in half. Uh. And they did it in a way that eliminated um, a whole range of jobs, the entire range mm -hmm. of jobs. And those were the positions that, under ideal circumstances, would have been the ones to implement this $17 billion new program uh, to get right. capital flowing into the economy for small businesses. Mm -hmm. So my job was to find people at the SBA and get them trained up really fast, okay. even though it wasn't their job. Yeah. You know, so we were dealing with clerks mostly. Mm -hmm. You know, it was sort of like, congratulations, you know. <laughs> we're <laughs> going to make you into a loan officer. And, uh, and it worked. You know, we worked uh -huh. really hard and uh -huh. got that dedicated and s much smaller than it had been workforce to get the capital out during the recovery. And it was really key because small businesses had been unable to get loans. It was really interesting for me, too, to, to be in the executive branch, mm -hmm. having come from an independent agency. So, And right. I was like the number two person in the agency. I wouldn't take a political job. I was always a career person. I didn't want a political job. So every day I would get all these emails from the White House with today's talking points uh. about everything, <laughs> education, the environment. I was like, why am I getting this? And that's the difference mm -hmm. between executive branch agencies and independent agencies. Mm -hmm. The executive branch agencies are run by a bunch of political appointees for the most part. They can be removed by the White House anytime. They serve at the pleasure of the president. And the White House really reaches in and has a great deal right. of control. Independent agencies, not so much. The White mm -hmm. House might try, but usually at the Federal Trade Commission, the chair was very tactful, uh -huh. no matter which party was in control, and saying, well, that's interesting. Thank you for letting us uh -huh. know. And then the commission would do what the commission was going to do. Right. And in fact, it's a matter of constitutional law that, um, that the president cannot remove the heads of independent agencies for reasons other than cause. And the case that established that was uh, a case involving um, a commissioner at the FTC oh. who Franklin Roosevelt tried to remove. And he sued. And he died. And his estate maintained the action and went to the <laughs> Supreme Court. And the case is Humphrey's executor. And it is the case that is taught in law schools. Uh. And so today, when we hear you know, talk of the president firing the head of the Federal Reserve. Right. He can try, yeah. but unless the Supreme <laughs> Court reverses Humphrey's executor, that can't be you can't done. can't do that. So I was fortunate to work mm -hmm. in a federal agency that really was somewhat independent mm -hmm. from the political vicissitudes. Uh, and I saw how it is yeah. at other agencies where the heads are political appointees mm -hmm. and really was able to notice the difference. One of the things... Um, about agencies that has been generally true forever, as far as I know, is that the people who have been named as general counsels for mm -hmm. those agencies uh, came with pretty deep knowledge and qualifications around the laws that created those agencies mm -hmm. and that the agencies enforce. And so the role of the general counsel in a federal agency is to make sure that the agency obeys the law. In the area of administrative law, which is a subject that I teach, and administrative law is the law that governs the government. Mm -hmm. Typically and historically, administrations, when challenged for violating some aspect of administrative law, agencies typically win more than 80% of the time uh -huh. when they're challenged. In the last two years, the administration has lost 94% of the time. 
And so they in they, federal court. They so, typically win because the general counsel has done its job throughout. Exactly. What's right. different mm-hmm. in my mind, and this goes to Michael Lewis's concerns, right. and I have a deep and abiding respect for the importance of the civil service right. in the stability of the United States. Mm-hmm. What's really changed here is that the people who have been appointed to the general counsel's offices in many agencies, they're always political appointees. Right. But they historically have been political appointees who know what they're doing mm-hmm. and have some respect for the mission of the agency right. and are committed to the rule of law. That is not the case. Yeah. So you've, you see the United States government now losing so far in the Trump administration 94% of the time wow. when challenged in federal court for violating principles of administrative law in the promulgation of regulations and the issuance of executive orders and in other agency actions. Mm-hmm. And it would seem that the strategy here is we're just going to do it mm-hmm. and see who challenges us. So there's been a fundamental shift from the federal civil service whether politically appointed or career civil servants, there's been a fundamental shift from the federal civil service being responsible for the enforcement of law Mm -hmm. to the responsibility for the enforcement of law shifting to the citizenry because the federal government isn't enforcing and abiding by the law in lots of instances, not only in the area of immigration and asylum law where there are constant challenges and constant actions taken and you know, regardless of what a person thinks ought to be the policy of welcoming refugees and migrants, there are laws. There's laws. There right, are laws. Right. And, and they're not being followed. Now, I'm really struck by the idea that traditionally a kind of one key group of guardians of the rule of law are these officials in the government who proceed according to a set of norms, right? And those are norms in part, they're political norms, right? Mm-hmm. That, that broadly speaking, political norms, a commitment to certainly their own political ideology, but also to the political system. But they're also professional legal norms, I would assume. I mean, these are people That's who right. are trained as lawyers and they take that seriously, right? So it's very interesting to think about that as being a key group protecting the rule of law, and the courts really serving as the venue where those people can protect the rule of law, right? The courts are the, are the adjudicators, but but now we, we're, we're falling back on citizens themselves being those defenders of the rule of law. And, and in some sense, that is to say that, that the court system itself is important in protecting the rule of law, but if we don't have government officials or citizens, or hopefully both, who are committed to that notion of the rule and law of law, then we're in real trouble. We are. And, you know, so I teach public policy for mm-hmm. you here right. at the University of Absolutely. Wisconsin. And we always begin with sort of a basic definition mm-hmm. of what we mean by public policy. And what we mean by public policy is the government's uh, statement of what it intends to do to address a particular issue or problem right. that requires the allocation of public resources that cannot or should not be uh, resolved in a purely private way or that the markets won't resolve. Right. And the most common vehicle for public policy is law, mm-hmm. regulation right. or law. Laws can be changed, and they're always political. You know, right. politics are about who gets what, when, and how, and, you know, there are contests around the development of public policy among all those different voices that say, no, we should get it, right. the, you know, and here's how we should get it. So laws are always in part political, 
But once they become the law, they are the law. And, right. and we have had disputes over the meaning of law since forever, and the courts are the arbiters there generally. But for certainly the last hundred years in the United States, we've had a pretty stable understanding, I think, of the role that the courts play, the role that the legislative branch plays, the role that government agencies play. I would say the role that the civil service plays. Well, I was going to say that, that hundred years maps nicely onto the development of the civil service. That's right. Right. That's right. And there have been complaints. People grouse all the time sure. about bureaucracy, government employees. You know, I, I would say that for the most part that Government employees at the local and state and federal level do a whole lot of important things that are done out of the sight of most members of the public, but they're really important not only because of the service that's provided, but because of the stability Mm -hmm. that is offered by the civil service. The United States is a conservative country in the sense that it is structured to require a fairly extensive process uh, for change. Right. You know, process is everything. Right. And what we're seeing now is, um, uh, I think, an attitude that is shared across the political leadership of the executive branch that we are simply going to impose new policy without following process. And that's why they're losing 94% of the time. I worry a little bit about whether at some point the courts where there have been large numbers of new judges added Mm -hmm. at all levels, whether the courts may start to reflect the view that process is not so important, that we can bend the law, that we can change the law. Um, You know, that we've got some justices on the Supreme Court now who hold to the view of the unitary executive, which is a fancy way of saying that their view is that the president should have far greater powers under Article II than courts have historically. Yeah. The executive uh, is unitary, and so the president's will is what moves the executive as a unit in in a general direction, but also in all of those down at the the at the at the level of particular policy implementation, it should be the president's will acting there as well. Yeah, and I, you know, I think because of the times that we live in, you know, when I was a student, it was the war in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. It, there mm-hmm. was a very specific thing, and and what it meant to be an activist was to protest and take action in all kinds of ways, including electing candidates who were opposed to the war, but also just, you know, keeping Dow Chemical from recruiting on right. campus. So the question is, what does an activist do now? Well, what that's that what like? I, I was going to ask you, because it's interesting that our conversation um, started out with activism, right, um, here in Madison at Edgewood um, on and the UW University. campus. Yep. And and we've come around to, you're talking a lot about stability. Mm-hmm. And, and so, I, I mean, I think you got to the question I was, that was starting to work in my mind, which is how do we reconcile activism or stabi- and stability? Or as you put it, today, what does activism look like? And is it a kind of activism in the service of stability, right? Which is I think interesting. It, I think today's activists, in part, are called to protect the rule of law, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is really... Interesting. It's it's a very you interesting. You know, because activists <laughs> generally have opposed law, have, you know, 
proposed uh, change to law. There right. still is room for change. But mm-hmm. the Administrative Procedures Act, which is like a big yawn for most people in the country, mm-hmm. the Administrative Procedures Act says when government agencies regulate, there's a process. And yeah. here's the process. And the process begins with the agency saying, this is what we're thinking about doing. Public, what do you think? Right. Give us your comments. Right. And uh, what we see now is an administration that too frequently is issuing regulations without having gone through the Administrative Procedures Act requirements. And they only are prevented from enforcing those sort of regulations by fiat when citizens take it upon themselves to go to court to say, wait, 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 you can't enforce this regulation because you didn't follow the process. There was no notice. There was no comment. You didn't explain how you reconciled the comments with the rule that you issued. And so there are all these kind of nerdy-sounding ways uh, that we really need today's activists to learn about and engage in because it's about the rule of law and the general truth, not completely, but the general truth that most laws favor democracy Mm -hmm. and favor uh, representative democracy and inclusion, most laws, not Mm -hmm. all. Right. And so when we abandon the law, we're abandoning the process that encourages democratic participation. I think one of the real important missions for the political science department, Mm -hmm. especially, is to help the students who are in the department as undergraduates or graduate students better develop skills to talk with people about the importance of law and process and structure. Mm. How do we talk to people about the importance of law and process? Right. And is there any common ground there? I would hope that people would be, if they understood, would be deeply disturbed by the extent to which the federal government is operating right now in what we lawyers would call an extra-legal way. They're Mm -hmm. outside of the law really often. Mm -hmm. We have really high-profile executive department initiatives that people are challenging. But then there are all sorts of other things happening that are really below the radar. So how do we talk about that with people so that the belief that people hold on to, that people who work for the government are lazy and don't know anything, Mm -hmm. maybe can shift when we say, well, but what about what about the extension? Right. Do they help you? Right. Yeah. You know, those are government people. Yeah. The University yeah. of Wisconsin runs extension here, but where where are they getting what they're pushing out? They're getting it from the United States Department of Agriculture. Yeah. Those are career civil servants. But this learning about process and, and understanding and appreciating process, that seems really challenging to teach people to appreciate that. And I think when you're talking about administrative processes, right? Like here's a goal or a target that's been set and we've got to figure out the best way to implement that and make that happen, right? Um, it, it's I think it's challenging to teach people that, and many people are going to fall back on the story they have from their own job with the HR department, right, or from their own attempt to deal with the city government on issue X. And what they're going to remember, what's going to be visible and memorable to them are those challenging times, right? And so how do you communicate to people that there are myriad processes going on all the time (laughs) that are flowing through the government, these government administrative processes that are happening, that are making it possible for you to do 
many of the things you do every day, but how you communicate that. And at the level of teaching college students, how you communicate that to your traditional 18 to 20-year-old, 22-year-old college student. What message do you tell an 18 or 22-year-old that might make them think, wow, doing that kind of work is valuable and important? Well, that's the whole point of the public policy class that I teach. Right. We always look at local and state issues and government, Mm -hmm. focus on some subject, you know, it might be housing or economic development or water quality, uh, whatever the subject of the year is, and take a look at questions and issues that are presently being addressed at the local and state level, find people in government, elected officials usually, who are working on those issues. And the students actually write policy memos to them and hear from them and get a sense that this is very real. There are a set of skills that you can develop that make you a more effective policy analyst and advocate. Mm -hmm. And government officials are generally open to receiving your thoughtful analysis and recommendation. There's a way to do it. And that is more than anything, I think, why it is that I'm enthusiastic about teaching this class in the political science department because I see what happens. You know, students are like, oh, my gosh, Supervisor Kolar read my memo. Oh, my gosh, the mayor read my memo and talked about it. Um, And I think that the people who we're fortunate to have in city, county, and state government who are in some way around here in Madison, you know, we have access to them. They're they're pretty excited about interacting with students yeah. on this too. They're really pleased to yeah. know that students are giving thought to these issues that are maybe not the ones that, you know, get the headlines. Right. But the students get really engaged yeah. and they go on. You know, I've been teaching this class since uh, this will be my sixth year, I think. And I still hear from students who were in the first class. Hmm. You know, some of them have now finished law school. Some of them got master's in public policy. Others have been doing other things. They are, a lot of them, still involved in in the work in some way, which is really gratifying. Yeah. Gratifying and hopeful, too, in the context of a challenging world. It's hopeful to hear those stories and... And think about them as, as the, the future public servants. And whether it's going into federal government work or finding ways to work at the, at the city level. And, you know, I think about some of, that kind of, some of that kind of governmental work that goes on at the city level. It's not a matter of devoting a career to it. It's a matter of serving in some of those positions for a while and, right. and moving out of those positions and doing your work as a citizen in that way. Well, Eileen, thank you so much for taking time to talk My to pleasure. us, and and thank you, um, thank you so very much for the course you teach. I think uh, as, as you hear from your former students, so do we hear about the amazing experience they have in that course, and and um, how it's shaped and in many ways reshaped the way they think about about the work they want to do in the world. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thanks. 